all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Were you trying to sound like a frog there or something? I like, guess. Well, that's horrible. I, I just talked like this. <laughs> um, just us this week. Yeah. No uh, No special guest, no unfortunately. No special guest. It was fun, though. Yes, it was. Having James on last week. Um, this is episode 85. Of All Bad Things. Yes. Did, did you say, and this is All Bad Things? Did I? I'm not sure. Did we just get derailed? I think we did. I think I I'm derailed Rachel. Us. And I'm David. And this is all bad things. Okay. <laughs> We've been getting worse at our intro lately. I don't know what it is, but okay. Anyway, this is all bad things. Uh, follow us, Insta, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, Facebook, yes, at allbadthingspod and at gmail.com. And that's about it. Oh, rate, review, rescribe. Yes. Should we make this short and sweet, or do you have anything to discuss? Um, Any preamble? I have nothing on the docket. Nothing on the docket. Mm-hmm. That was very official sounding. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, so I did not give you many hints on the topic for this week. Um, I said that it was in a country that we've never covered before. And that while you were watching Jimmy Dore, uh-huh. it relate, somewhat related to one of the words on the screen. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts uh, as to no, that? No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. It was a super obscure hint anyway. So okay. Even... I figured as such. <laughs> so this is the story of the Basra grain poisoning. Okay. Have you ever heard of this? Uh-uh. Okay. So, from the end of 1971 to the beginning of 1972, approximately 95,000 metric tons of grain tainted with mercury was imported to Iraq, the consumption of which caused the deaths of at least 459 people. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so we're going back to the early 70s Iraq. Early 70s and yes, Iraq. I wonder if so. they were wearing bell bottoms over there in the uh, <laughs> early in the 70s in the um, Middle East. Um, I don't know about that. Um, when you see like some old like when I watch old news footage of whatever conflict we were in, you do mm-hmm. see American a, fashion making a, its way. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, even in the Middle East. Hmm. Which is interesting cuz you don't really think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's interesting. Maybe they were then. Just picture everybody in this story wearing bell bottoms. Yeah, I think they will. <laughs> Especially since 400-some people are going to be poisoned. And we'll get into to the death. death toll as well, obviously, yeah, I'm, later. Yeah, I'm sure that's a bit of a... That yeah. That's a guesstimate at best. Yes, basically. All right, so we're going to delve into yet another of one of Rachel's famous short histories of a place with a really complicated and long history. (laughs) Iraq edition. (laughs) So just a short history. It's little, little tiny. And like, it's not like anything happens there. That region hasn't been around (laughs) that long. No. (laughs) So first our geography corner. So Iraq, officially the Republic of Iraq is quite literally in the middle of the Middle East. So it borders Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Iran, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. Basically all places Americans aren't supposed to go, I think. It's like on the, um, what you call it, the, the doesn't the secretary, is it this, the State Department issues like warnings, travel warnings of where you probably shouldn't go, and like Yemen has been on there forever. Yeah, you definitely don't want to go there. Um, I think we're pretty safe going to Saudi Arabia for the most part. Yeah. Um, if you're not a woman, that is. Oh, well. So... You can't go. I'll, oh, I'll, oh, okay. I'll go. You'll just go for it. I'll tell you about it. Okay. I wouldn't want you to go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> uh, there are some larger lakes there, um, but only a very small bit of the country proportionately is coast. There's like 58 kilometers or 36 miles of coastline along the Persian Gulf portion of the Indian Ocean. Sure. So mm-hmm. the rest is all 
surrounded by other land. So. I, I believe it's the biggest country in terms of size. It's pretty too, sizable. In the, in the yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't compare the land masses, but maybe. Uh, so generally, unsurprisingly, Iraq is mostly hot arid climate uh, with relatively low rainfall, but it does have mountains in the north and some fertile farmland near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which... Heard of those. Yes, these rivers are mentioned in the Bible, I was going to say, yeah. Yep, and some people think that the Garden of Eden was, or to some people is, uh, because some people take that shit really literally, in modern-day Iraq. So I remember asking, like, my parents, well, like, is, is the Garden of Eden still, like, a place or whatever? And is, is basically nobody really answers that question with any, <laughs> you know. Some some people think it's, like, in a different dimensional plane. I don't know. It's all <laughs> whatever. I'm sure there's a... I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I'm sure there's a book written about it. That there is mm. that that very famous one called. Benny. Yeah. <laughs> it's also included. Is it included in the Bible? I don't know. The Garden of Eden. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. That's where it comes I, from. Did I, you I not was, know that? No, know. Oh, do you know what the Garden of Eden is? It's that's where uh, Adam and Eve met. Yes. And what book depicts where Adam and Eve met and the stories of Adam and Eve? I honestly I have no idea. The Bible. The whole, that's the, but the whole thing is. What, <laughs> Not you, the whole Bible, the book yeah. of Genesis. Okay, well, I don't know the books or the names or the. You didn't oh. know that the, the story of Adam and Eve was a biblical one? I knew that, I think. Oh, okay. I guess. I don't fucking know. It's just, it's, it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo <laughs> bullshit is, anyway. It is. You shouldn't feel ashamed for yeah. not knowing, but no, it's, it's in the first book of the Bible. Like the whole Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was out, was without form and blah, 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 blah. And then the seven, six days he created shit. Seventh day he rested. He created shit on the sixth day? He must have been pretty bored. <laughs> well, actually, he created humans on the sixth day, so technically he created shit on, this, on the sixth day, too. I guess. Well, no, I guess animals, too. So, I don't know. Maybe it was the fourth. Whatever. Whatever. Um, so, anyway. <laughs> so, because the history of Iraq goes back possibly to the literal beginning of time on Earth, if you believe the Bible... Um, we're literally just going to pick up in the mid 20th century. Like we're going to forget everything else prior to that. Cause so there was that so much. So there was that whole Bible thing. Fast forward 2000 years. Oh, oh, well, yeah, it depends on (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Nothing, nothing serious happened in between that. No, everything was, everything was fine. (laughs) This was the first bad thing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) So we're going to pick up in 1958. Um, when a successful coup of the government, known of the Iraqi government specifically, mm-hmm. known as the July 14th Revolution, was led by Abd al-Karim Kazim. So this is where I was telling you that there's going to be some fun pronunciation yes, this year. Um, interestingly, too, I was thinking about it, 1958 was also the year uh, that Castro came into power in Cuba, specifically like... Um, the last day of the year. It was December 31st, 1958, I believe, when uh, he... I believe it was also... Revolution. I think it was also 58. It might have been 57 mm-hmm. that uh, the CIA overthrew um, Iran's prime oh. minister, uh, so Mossadegh to the Shah. Okay. So some serious shit was going down in the late 50s. Oh, yeah. Then this is all during the Cold War, too. Yes. Yes, that's true. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of proxy shit going on, right? Like, people. That's, what the, that's almost what the Middle East exclusively. Was for years. Still is. Uh, I mean, that's just all it's other ever Other countries been. manipulating them. Pretty much. To fight each other. Yeah, pretty wow. much. Mm-hmm. You can say the same for Central America and yeah. a lot of South America. Yeah. And I, lear- I learned a lot about uh, Nazis in South America on the last last oh, podcast on the left about episode. About Mengele? Well, he yes, he was there for like apparently South America was like a Nazi hangout. You didn't know after, that? I had heard yeah, stuff I had like that. Heard that, yeah. But I didn't really know. To, I've never really okay. researched it on my own yeah, all that's, that much. That's where a lot of people fled. I didn't Nazis, know. Yeah. I know some people had. I just didn't know how many. Mm. Like, I, it, yeah, they were saying it was in the thousands, it's tens of thousands of people. I was like, what yeah. the fuck? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, indeed. The world's a crazy place. <laughs> so in 58, um, Kasim helped led the revolution. Then he was overthrown five years later in 1963 by Abdul Salam Arif, 
who was then succeeded by his brother, Abdul Rahman Arif, who was then overthrown by the Ba'ath Party in 1968. So it's like every five years there's another coup. So, yes, tons of overthrowing. And the Ba'ath Party at that point was... Un- so when the Ba'ath Party came into prominence uh, or into power, it was under the presidency of Ahmad Hassan al-Bakr. I'm really just doing my best at these. They're, I'm mostly just pronouncing it phonetically, but anyway. And I want to say that sect of that religion stayed in power. Yes, until, uh, you are correct. Because Hussein was a Ba'athist. Damn it. Oh, I'm I was, sorry. That was oh. my big reveal. Oh, okay. okay, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so the Ba'ath Party is named for Ba'athism, and I hope I'm... I'm so it's B A apostrophe A T H. I've heard it. So bath, bath. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I feel like there's there's two A's. So bath. Be, bath. Bath. Anyway, um, everybody's pronouncing it wrong, so it's okay. <laughs> Which means Renaissance or resurrection. So that's the oh, idea. Okay. It's an Arabic nationalist ideology, and the Bath Party rules by probably not a big shock here authoritarianism. You're kidding me. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it was founded in the 40s, 1940s, and split into two factions in 1966 after a coup of the Syrian government. Just coup, coup, coups all over. Coups, coups, coups. <laughs> um, so many coups. I'm cuckoo for coups. <laughs> cuckoo puffs. Um, so the two factions are the Iraqi Ba'ath Party and the Syrian Ba'ath Party. Uh, and they have historically been highly antagonistic towards each other to yes. the point where the Syrian Ba'ath Party supported Iran during the Iraq-Iran War of the 80s. And it was the only Arab state to do so. So it's like, fuck you, Iraq. We're, we're putting our, our support behind Iran just to say, fuck you. So... So this is all very interesting, obviously, but the main interesting thing that has already been spoiled (laughs) is who led these two parties in their heyday. Specifically, this might be interesting, the Syrian faction was led by one Hafez al-Assad, who led from 1970 until his death in 2000, when his son, current Syrian Mm -hmm. president, Bashar Bashar. al-Assad, succeeded him. Um, and then more pertinent to this story, the Iraqi Ba'ath Party came into prominence under the leadership of one, yes, Saddam Hussein Abd al-Majid al-Takriti. That's his full name. Sure. Saddam Hussein. So he was a leading member of the Ba'ath Party during its coup of the Iraqi government. And later, Hussein was the secretary general of the party from 92 until 92 sounds late. But yeah, maybe. he was definitely before that. No, he was he was in prominence. I just mm-hmm. don't know that he was a secretary general until the nineties. Uh, he as I mean, I know he was the prime minister, or however it works. Secretary in Iraq. general was during his... is that the title? Yes, he was during the first Gulf War, and that was well, before ninety two. Okay, well, let me look. And he was he definitely was in the eighties too because we backed him in the. 80s. Oh, sorry, seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. Until yeah. two. Th- oh wow! I got my dates all mixed up. So yeah, from seventy nine until three. Were you looking 03, at the kilometer calculator? I may again? have been. <laughs> <laughs> or the meters, whichever one you always messed up. So um, yeah, from seventy nine <clears throat> to oh three. And, Samsonite. <laughs> and of course, then he died in oh six in a very public hanging. Yes. Um, there is uh, footage of that. Have I've you seen ever, it. You've yeah. seen it, yeah. It's, I've seen that's it too. the very early days of cell phone. It's really grainy, cell phone video cameras. Bad footage, but yeah. but yeah, and, I mean you can tell what's going on, and it's pretty gruesome. Yeah, fucking hanging him. Mm-hmm. Not that he didn't deserve that, because wow. he most certainly did. But we won't even delve into. He was sixty-nine when he was hanged. Of course he was. Now he's going to get his however many versions oh, he gets. Whatever. whatever. Eighty-seven of them. So at the time of our story, Hussein was the vice president. So he was the number two in the country, and uh, that was after the president Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr. So this is all pertinent to the cultural stage of Iraq during this particular disaster. It does kind of come into play. The Iraqi government comes into play in this story. So I'll bet they do. Yeah. So this this started in late 1971. So as recently as 1968 is when the most recent coup had happened. So this is all like obviously a very recent history of a very unstable government. So um, 
Now, further, in 1969, a severe drought began in Iraq that was continuing to go on through 1971. And the drought was really severe. It was estimated to have affected half a... Yes, half a million people. <laughs> Sorry, it's just... I wrote it as 500,000, and I'm like, wait, is 500,000 half, half a million? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and so, basically, like, the country was more or less on the brink of a famine, a full-blown famine. And at this point in Iraq's history, they, it was an agriculture-driven economy as opposed to an oil-driven economy. Um, so, any ill effects to the main commodity, you know, of, of agriculture on the economy was pretty devastating. So, all right. So now we're going to get into the grain and the grain that was poisoned in this whole grain poisoning disaster. So I'm going to start with a super obvious statement. Wheat is a hugely important crop the world over, Um, especially, and I know this is going to sound kind of sarcastic, but this was before all the gluten-free shit. So this this is back in the 70s. So even though it is still continues to be a highly important crop, um... I would imagine it was even more so back then, but anyway. Um, And no exception, Iraq was highly dependent on wheat. And because of this drought that had moved in in 69, uh, the wheat crop was especially affected by the drought. So the yields were much lower than they were expected to be and should have been. And then there there are some issues in the area just with the natural... um, salt level of the soil the salinity is actually really high there and so that was sort of compounded the problem of the drought and made the wheat yields even lower during that whole time so in an effort to relieve these like basically famine conditions in iraq the Ba'ath government tried to troubleshoot by importing a type of wheat that would thrive better in the country. So like a different strain, right? A different, a different seed that could be hardier and work better and tolerate the, the, the salty soil better as well. So they found a wheat varietal called Mexipac. Um, now, I also saw it referred to as Maxipac, but, uh, which kind of sounds like Maxipad. But uh, it had, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> but it was developed in Mexico, so it makes sense that it was called Mexipac, you know. Um, so it was a high-yield type of wheat that was more tolerant to the high salt levels of soil. So it was just a hardier varietal. So it made sense that that would be a good, a good type of a good varietal to import so that it could be planted in... Um, in Iraq and have better yields than the natural crop had been having. So the Iraqi government contracted Cargill, who we've probably mostly heard of, right? Have you ever heard of Cargill? I maybe. They're, they're a huge, like, agricultural conglomerate. Oh, okay. They have been for years. Um, uh, anyway, they contracted them to deliver 73,000 metric tons of wheat and 22,000 metric tons of barley to Iraq to be planted. So the only problem was uh, the grain was delivered behind schedule, um, and it was it was delivered to Basra, hence the Basra grain, grain poisoning. Um, Basra is a city in Iraq along the Shat al-Arab, or the river of the Arabs, in the southeasternish part of Iraq, um, not far from the Persian Gulf, so like the river goes into the Gulf. Um, it was oh yeah, that part. <laughs> Beautiful there. Yes, it was delivered by a freighter named the SS Trade Carrier, and the wheat arrived first between mid September and mid October. October, and then the barley like in the following month, like mid October to mid November. But the problem is that the planting season in Iraq was this short window of like October and November. So by the time most of the grain got there, like that planting window was pretty much done with. And most of the farmers had already done their planting that they could do for the season. Um, Also, because the shipment was late and running behind schedule, they initially had like trucks and trains scheduled to take the grain from the ship and then deliver it out into different parts of the country. Well, 
they they couldn't just have the the trucks and the trains sit there and not be doing anything like waiting for this ship that was late and i'm not talking like minutes or hours late like days days late. yeah um so they sent those trains and trucks to do other things so then the ships arrived and then they had to get more trucks and trains in so the grain actually sat on the on the ship for a while um so that made everything just lag even farther behind. So not only was the shipment late, the distribution of the grain was late. So it just was all late. <laughs> so once it was finally distributed, because it was lagging so far behind schedule, um, the grain was given out really quickly, very openly, without much, um, well, it was without any charge. So they were giving it out away, um, which that's good. That's like a human, humanitarian effort, um, and without any like much discrimination in who was actually getting it or anything. Uh, and because, like I said, because it was had arrived late, a lot of people at our, a lot of farmers had already finished their planting for the season. So when they received the grain that was shipped in, they had two problems. So the first problem these farmers had was that their planting season was over and they couldn't plant this grain. And then the second problem they faced was that all this new grain flooding the market, being given out to everybody sort of willy-nilly, would bring down the value of the grain they were trying to sell. Um, So most of them tended to sell the grain that they had themselves had produced and keep the grain that they were given for themselves and their own consumption. Now, this ended up being uh, sort of a fatal flaw in the plan, as it turned out. So, so anyway, up until this point, this all sounds like a like a decent idea, right? Like poor execution, but but a like a good humanitarian sure. effort, right? So, like the the people of Iraq were in a bad spot because of the drought. The Iraqi government intervened ordered a bunch of grain to try and help feed everybody. But the problem, which can be deduced by (laughs) the title of this episode, is that the grain that had been imported and distributed was tainted with mercury. Okay. Okay, so so real quick, well, I can't promise this is going to be quick, but anyway, (laughs) let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about mercury. Mercury poisoning, more specifically, yes. (laughs) So, what do you know about mer- mercury? I honestly know nothing about it, other than that it's bad for you. Okay. Um, here are the three things I knew about it prior to, to looking into it. It's in old-fashioned thermometers. Like, don't remember uh, yes, when, yeah. when you were a little getting your temperature taken? And it's, like, really hard to read because mm-hmm. you have to look for the mercury in the thermometer. Um, so, I knew that. I knew that I knew Freddie Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> And um, that fish and mercury is is a thing. Uh, yeah, I can't. I guess I think I knew that too. Which we'll but, get into right. in a minute here. Um, but anyway, uh, mercury can can be actually a pretty cool looking thing. It looks like liquid silver, like the element of mercury. It's it's kind of cool. It's like a liquid solid silvery thing. So it looks like the guy from Terminator Two. I've never saw Terminator 2. Oh, I never saw Terminator 1. That's, that's even worse. Why? Because they're both great films, but I think I think the first one's better. But anyway. <laughs> Are we going to let Demetrius in? He hit his clawing at our soundproofing. Hi. Okay. At least you said hello to everybody. Okay. Um, so I don't know what that looks like, but... <laughs> Several people, I'm sure, out there listening have, have seen Terminator 2. Oh, the, I'm the, sure. The guy that turns into, he turns back and forth from... Liquid to solid. Yeah, he can, like, shapeshift. Oh, it's pretty, okay. It's pretty cool. Okay. Very dated-looking special effects I'm now, sure. but uh, when they came out, it was like, wow. <laughs> okay. Are we in the future? It's 1991. <laughs> so, um... Mercury does not conduct heat very well compared to other metals, but it's pretty decent at conducting electricity, for what it's worth. Um, In ancient Chinese medicine, it was thought to have healing powers and prolonged life, and boy, were they ever wrong about that. So much for that. that. (laughs) Thing is, 
Mercury is toxic to humans. It is a, a toxin. And now, a lot of the toxicity depends on how much exposure and, like, the length of time you're exposed. Sure. So, um... And it's it's not like if you breathe in the breathe the air in a room with a thermometer, you'll drop dead or anything. Obviously, um, in fact, mercury naturally occurs in the air, water, soil, everything, but obviously in very minute amounts. Um, and very low levels of mercury exposure are very common and, in general, not very dangerous. For a lot of people, mercury in fish is a known exposure risk. Um, not to me and nope. not to anyone else who doesn't consume animal products or fish, for that matter. Um, and that type of mercury that people get exposed to through the consumption of fish is called methylmercury. Um, but um, I'm just going to keep calling it all mercury for the most part because I It's everything mercury. It, yeah, I, I can't really describe it any further than it's that. It's Freddy mercury. So it's Freddy mercury. So fish absorb mercury very easily, but they don't eliminate it very quickly. So um, that's why so they it kind of hangs to, around in their exactly, system. Exactly. That's why they tend to carry around, be carrier of higher mercury levels. And I had kind of heard this, but like bigger fish tend to ha- be higher in levels of mercury, and that's because they eat smaller fish, which have mercury in them, which eat smaller fish, with have which have mercury in them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's consumption through the food chain. So it makes sense that if humans eat fish that have eaten fish that have eaten fish that have eaten fish, that all that mercury is just adding up, basically. And then you'll turn into Freddie Mercury. <laughs> That, was, that, was that the best. is not how he became that's Freddie the, Mercury. That's the best I could do. For shame. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so exposure to higher levels or accumulated levels of mercury can be really destructive to the human body. Um, uh, mercury is specifically toxic to the nervous system, which, quick aside, I saw, um, I think it was Karen Kilgariff from My Favorite Murder tweeted a picture of a human nervous system, like that had been completely removed from a body. Okay. It was crazy. It was I, really I don't crazy. I think I've ever seen that before. It, so it was the brain. Yeah. The eyes, I guess, because it was connected to the nerves. Sure. And then the entire the nervous spine. system. No, then, no, no, no bones. It okay. was all just the nerves. It was literally just all the nerves, and it looked like this weird tree, like with limbs. It was very, very cool and gross at the same time. But anyway. So, uh, so it's really harmful to the central nervous system or to, to the nervous system in general, including the peripheral nervous system. And it can also harm organs involved in digestion and respiration, depending on whether it's ingested or inhaled. So if you are consuming mercury, like ingesting it, then it can hurt your digestive organs. If you're breathing it in, then it can hurt your respiratory system as well. So exposure symptoms include awful peripheral nervous system sensations, like feeling your skin is crawling, itching, burning, or painful. The skin can peel and get discolored. Numbness or tingling in the limbs. Difficulty seeing or hearing. Not being steady on your feet. And emotional and mental impairment can also be symptoms of mercury poisoning. And of course, if the exposure is high enough, it can lead to serious physical health impairments, including brain damage, central nervous system damage, and of course, death. Jesus, I didn't yeah. know it could do all those things. Oh, yes, it's poison. Damn. Tis poison, you see. Let's just leave the door open for Demetrius. He can't seem to decide which way he wants to go. There we go. All right. So now we'll get back to our grain, our tainted grain. Thank you. Uh, so I said it was tainted, but more specifically, the grain that was imported to Basra contained an average of 7.9 milligrams per gram of mercury, though some had much higher levels. We'll just call that high. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not good. <laughs> but anyway, one might rightly ask, why was there mercury in this grain? Like, it, how did it get tainted with this mercury? Um, so the grain was being imported from North America, so it had a very long journey to take, right? Yeah, By ship. that's, yeah. Uh-huh. And that obviously took time. And there was a very big and justified concern that the grain might be exposed to too much humidity and pests 
along the journey that it would so it could get um, infiltrated with bugs or also become moldy, and so then they just have a giant ship full of grain that would yeah. be, would be useless. Right? I'm sure that did happen here or there. Well, so what they decided to do, and it was reported that this decision was actually made by the Iraqi government and not by Cargill, not by the, the exporter or the supplier, was to use a fungicide on the grain. So to try and, and stop that from happening so that the grain would arrive and be usable. So in the recent past at this time, methylmercury was used as a fungicide because it was effective and at the time of this story, it was also pretty cost-effective. It was pretty cheap. Um, the thing about methylmercury, we know that mercury is dangerous to ingest, but it was harmless when on seeds that were then planted. Okay. Like, once the plants grew, it wasn't a problem. Sure. Like, that mercury didn't go through the whole plant or whatever. So the idea was you cut these seeds or, you know, add this, this fungicide to the seeds— they get planted and everything's okay and, and no one's exposed to un- ingested unsafe levels of mercury. Okay. Okay. Um, now, the problem is methylmercury was cheap and cost-effective because the demand for it had fallen because countries were starting to ban its usage because oh. of environmental and, of course, health concerns. So... Anyway... So then there were other third-world countries out there like, we'll take all of it. Well... So, so a question might be asked, well, okay, so it's safe to use if the seeds are planted and then, like, the, the plants that grow are fine, but did people know this? Did the, like, was this all being, was the government transparent about what was going on here? Um, and the answer is sort of. Maybe. So there were warnings written on these bags of rice, like on these cloth sacks of rice, that said that it contained mercury and it was not for consumption. It was only for planting. But uh-huh. the problem was these warnings were written in English and Spanish <laughs> and being shipped to Iraq. <laughs> so Why didn't they just use the Google Translator? <laughs> right, in 1971? Yeah, it was around back then. <laughs> right. So they obviously didn't use a language that could be widely understood in Iraq. So first of all, the warnings were pretty much ineffective because no one could read it. Um, and when the grain was first distributed, you're, you're looking very because curious. I, what are you thinking of? Because I, I thought most Middle Eastern countries, um, like, a, like a third, second or third language was English. Well, to a lot of them. one thing is... You have to remember, this was mostly being um, handed out to farmers. So we're not talking necessarily an educated group of people like who would have been afforded an education to learn English, per se, potentially. I mean, and this is also almost 50 years ago. True, but I mean, the Middle East is not that far from a lot of English-speaking countries. So I don't know. I just, that seems strange. But but like you said. We'll put it this way. Not everyone who got these bags could understand these warnings. Um, and apparently they were ignorant to Google. <laughs> well, and, and it may, that those warnings may have mitigated, mitigated it to a point. Sure. But yeah, <clears throat> not, not. Well, at least that step was taken. So. Oh, okay. Yes. Like I said, there yeah. were some steps taken. Mm-hmm. Another step that was taken was that when the grain was first distributed, farmers had to sign like a disclosure or a disclaimer statement you know like look read this and like in their language and it would say like this is this contains mercury don't eat it it." repeat after me yeah and so they actually signed those documents and so they they were warned okay um but as because everything was running behind all this distribution of the grain that got a little willy-nilly sure. and fell by the wayside. So not everyone saw that disclaimer or signed it. So um, Plus, it's not like all these disclaimers and everything are being put into this huge database. Right, the, the, right. It literally doesn't exist anywhere really on Earth right. at, at this point. And this is also a government that's three years old yeah. at this point, like after having th- overthrown that's the previous through, government. Yeah, yeah, and the previous one before so, that. Yeah. Now, there was one major tell on this grain that something was weird about it. It was colored like a reddish-orangish color, yeah, which is not a normal color for no. wheat and barley. Um, what 
what they did, what had happened was that th- there, it was a form of dye that had been put on this grain to raise suspicions so that people wouldn't accidentally ingest it. Okay. It was meant to be like the last warning. Sure. It was, hey, don't eat this. It's a weird color. Um, and obviously people were concerned about that. They're like, this isn't normal. But they found that if they just rinsed the grain, it, it just came it, right it off. It dissolved off, yeah. Okay. Um, so then they were like, oh, well, all we have to do is wash it. What they didn't realize is that the mercury stayed mm. on the grain when they did that. So anyway. Now, um, the farmers, you know, obviously some had warnings, and I'm assuming some therefore followed all the instructions if they understood it and everything, but those who didn't or who weren't sure were still kind of wary of this between the the dying and the fact that it was coming from another continent and potentially leery of their own government giving them something for free. Yeah, yeah. So they were like, okay, well, let's do this. Let's see if this works. They decided before they would eat it themselves, they'd do their own testing by giving it to, like, chicken and sheep. Because these were farmers mostly, right? So they've got their own um, animals. So they fed this grain to some people, anyway, fed this grain to, to their animals and then just waited and, like, yeah, we would not feed you tainted grain. No, we wouldn't. We would never do that, kitty. We would never do that. Maybe in a zombie apocalypse, but that's only a last-ditch thing. It'd kind of be cool if they became zombie cats. <laughs> zombie cats. I think they are sometimes. Um, yeah. So they waited to see how the animals reacted, and the animals seemed fine. So they were like, Okay. I mean, they didn't know specifically what sure. was wrong with it. So they were like, okay, well, it doesn't seem to be like killing off our animals. Not killing them. Right? Must be good for us. So they were like, okay, maybe especially because shit is pretty dire at this point with food, we'll go ahead and eat this. So in spite of the warnings, which remember, not everybody had and not everybody understood. And then it's also possible some people didn't think the government was being very honest with them about the fact that it was tainted. And maybe we're just trying to get them to plant it instead of eat it for themselves, you know. Um, So people, some people ate it. And they also ate the animals who had been fed the grain as well. So in some cases there was double exposure. Um, And people who ate the grain directly tended to grind it up into flour first. That's how it was mostly used. So when they, to bake, you know, like to, if you grind wheat, it becomes wheat flour and then you can bake with it, right? Make bread and stuff. So they would grind it and as they were grinding it, they had inhalation exposure. Oh, so they're just... because of the dust, yes. There there were multiple, there were ingestion and respiration and I imagine physical contact as well. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, and they're fitting through their skin. Yeah. So, initially everything kind of seemed okay and that's because, and the same thing with these animals, the animals, right? There's generally a latency period in mercury poisoning. So a period of time where everything seems okay and no symptoms are appearing. And that period's generally like two to five weeks or so. So for that period of time, everything seemed kind of hunky-dory. Then near the end of December, 1971, people began showing up at hospitals with symptoms of damage to the nervous system. So this, uh, all those symptoms I mentioned before, especially like, you know, tingling, itching, numb sensations in the peripheral nervous system, limbs and skin and stuff like that. Um, The hospital in Kirkuk, which is a a city in northeast Iraq, especially, like, quickly filled up with these patients. And this was not the first time this hospital had seen these symptoms. In 1960, there had also been another mercury poisoning outbreak. I could not find any further information on that. Like, why and what was the deal here? But anyway, because they had seen it before, it didn't take that long for them to figure out what was going on with these patients, which is the good news. At least they were kind of able to figure out what was going on. So the hospital warned the government what was going on on December 26, 1971, which was within five days of the first person being admitted to the hospital for poisoning. So it was figured out pretty quick. Um, be- especially considering well, I mean, their thank- random symptoms a little bit. And 
thankfully, not thankfully, they had some experience with the symptoms. They're right. like, oh, I've seen this before. They're like, oh, this looks familiar. Yeah. This looks like that Freddie Mercury thing. <laughs> so in January 1972, the government started warning people about the grain. Um, now, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of farmers didn't have access to radios, TVs, or newspapers, so there was a big lag time in word getting around to especially rural areas um, to hear the warnings. And so hospital admissions from mercury poisoning spiked during January and into February of 1972. Um, the Iraqi army then ordered the immediate disposal of all the tainted grain by anyone who's, who still had it in their possession. And then they escalated things a bit. <laughs> they said, um, if we find you in possession of this grain you will get the death penalty. Okay, that's... That's very, yes, very unmeasured response. So, yeah, to escalate it from, like, get rid of all this grain to, if we find you with it, we're going to kill you, is pretty... <laughs> that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, things tend to do that in the Middle East. It goes, <laughs> yes. it goes from, hey, like, could you please get off my lawn to, uh, we're going to launch a jihad on you. It can, it can get a little and, out of control. And that, those two things happen within, that's like the next step. Yeah. Like asking politely and then death threat. <laughs> uh, so because of the delay for farmers hearing about it, by the time a lot of them heard about it, it wasn't just, oh, hey, this is bad grain. It was, hey, this is bad grain and we're going to come and kill you if we find you with <laughs> So that was all they heard about. They're like, shit. And and if you make it and eat it, guess what? You'll wind up killing yourself. So either way. (laughs) That's true. So a lot of... How do you want to die? A lot of farmers were like, oh, shit. We need to get rid of this grain. And a lot of them did this by dumping it into the water supply, into rivers and other bodies of water, most commonly the Tigris River. So that made the mercury poisoning get into the food supply of the fish, right? So anyway, it just did not help anything, um, which death threats and the death penalty rarely help much of anything. Uh, so the World Health Organization came in to help the Iraqi government respond to those affected by the poisoning. Now, treatments had varying levels of efficacy. The main thing was to get this tainted grain out of the food supply, right? And then the the exposure levels would drop. So, but anyway, official reports showed. Now this is official reports in Iraq in the seventies showed that six thousand five hundred thirty patients were admitted to the hospital for mercury poisoning in Iraq through March twenty seventh, nineteen seventy two. That was the last day someone was admitted for that. Um, but it is largely thought to be a gross understatement of the actual number of people affected. In the end, the official death toll was 459, though some Iraqi doctors think it was more like 10 times that number. So it could have actually been in the thousands. And um, it's speculated that as many as 100,000 people were left with brain damage from some level of brain damage or central nervous system damage from the exposure. Uh, The Iraq government issued a media blackout following the outbreak, so accurate Uh, information is obviously very difficult to ascertain, and a lot of people were kept in the dark. And it's also customary in Iraq and many parts of the Middle East for people to die at home whenever possible. So this is only counting hospital deaths of 459 people. Who knows how many people just died at home? So, So, and that wouldn't have been reflected in the official records. So at that time, Iraqi citizens are... it's. Like the human equivalent of being a cat and just going off into the woods. Like, oh, I'm just going to die at home. Well, I mean, I'm not... It, it's I, not even I'm about that. I, I get what you're saying, but it's not even about the time. It's it's considered part of cult. A no, that's what I'm saying. Thing. It's a custom. Yeah, a just like, custom. Just like a cat walking off to his own death. Well, you know what? I don't... I, I would much rather just die comfortable and at home than at a hospital. I'm Well, I get... <laughs> I would like to die comfortably. That's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, hospitals, I, I would prefer my last visions not to be of a hospital environment, yeah. but something more well, comforting than that. We'll get to that. Uh, hopefully, not <laughs> oh. for, hopefully not for another yeah, 50 years. Yeah, but. hopefully not for quite some time. <laughs> Maybe we'll still be doing the pod by then. Who knows? <laughs> this is episode uh, 9,000. 
437. <laughs> I have new teeth this week, so I'm trying to get used to them. Um, so most of the reported fatalities were in people under the age of 30. Oh, so, oh you know, yeah. Well, it hit a lot of young people. Sure. And many were under the age of 10. So... Um, in the aftermath, many people who were exposed and exhibited minor symptoms were able to completely recover. Those who had serious symptoms generally improved. Most of the lasting effects were in children who had been exposed either as children or in utero. Um, so some had damage to their central nervous system and or developmental delays. Uh, one very creepy and sad effect of mercury poisoning in fetuses and infants is the so-called quiet baby syndrome, which is when a baby that has been exposed to mercury doesn't cry because of brain damage from oh. the mercury exposure, which is pretty creepy. Imagine a baby that Not never crying. cries. Well, because that's like a, and especially when you are freshly out of the womb, like crying is like a like a sign that you're breathing and it's, okay. It's also like one of your only like, uh, I guess a defense mechanism might be the best way to say it, but a warning to let people know like, hey, I'm here, I need water. Or so if you can't, right? Yes, do right. that. Babies cry because they need something. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So, so if you can't do that. Your your uh, your um, care providers have to figure out what you need <clears> when because you're not telling them. Basically, it's how they communicate. It's how babies communicate. So yeah, imagine a baby that just doesn't. I'll bet there are plenty of preschool teachers, though, that wish all their children had well, mercury poisoning. Well, it's different. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let's hope not. I, I couldn't. You know, you know, one of them has thought about that at some point. They were reading like a similar article. And they're like, hmm, that'd be kind of, that'd be great. Where can I go for that? With like that, um, that. 80s Twilight Zone episode you were talking about Little Peace and Quiet. Oh, yeah. Who could yell shut up. When she just says shut up. Yeah, the whole world stops. It's pretty interesting. Um, So, anyway. Oh, perhaps not coincidentally, Iraq has the highest incidence of Parkinson's disease in the world. Really? Like, still today? Yeah. Yeah, that's in modern, modern times, so... That could be... I mean, this was 50 years ago, so... Yeah. By, a lot of the people who were exposed as children would be of the sure. age yeah, of... Yeah, that's true. Like, of becoming, like, old enough to have Parkinson's. <laughs> if they made it through the Iran-Iraq War, if they made it through the First yeah, they had Gulf a lot War, of other <laughs> if they made it through the Second through. Gulf War, yeah. if they made it through the switch in government. Yeah. They've had, like, six or seven hurdles since then, but there might be... a three or four guys like around being like, hey, you remember when we couldn't speak when we were infants? <laughs> yeah, I wonder why we have Parkinson's now. <laughs> yeah, wonder, yeah, why can't we talk to each other now? Yeah. So in 1974, the Food and Agricultural or- Agriculture Organization, FAO, and the World Health Organization, the WHO, had a meeting to see how they could prevent another outbreak like this one in the future. Now, some really common sense recommendations were made, like um, how about writing the warnings in a locally understood language. Hey, um, let's start with the basic things, yeah. folks. And they also were like, how about we just not use methylmercury yeah. anymore as a fungicide? So later that year in 74, a conference was held in Baghdad to discuss the recommendations given by the FAO and the WHO. And they further recommended, hey, how about we not do a media blackout because advertising what's going on and getting information out there is super important in the case of an outbreak. So, and all the people in the government were like, yeah. <laughs> so that's all I got. That was the boss or grain poisoning. Yeah, that sucks. I mean, that's... I, I obviously, I work in the food industry. Yes, you do, with a lot of um, regulation. Yeah, a ton. Um, and that, and every single, trust me, every single one of those pieces is necessary. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I, like if somebody came to us one day and mm-hmm. was like, Hey, the stuff you're making is killing people. I'd be like, Jesus, I don't yeah. know how, I don't know how I'd react to that. I, you know well, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously it wouldn't be any of our fault necessarily. I mean, we're doing things the way we do things. Well, the you know? idea with <clears throat> regulation is that they're catching this stuff 
way further down this food supply because you're the last. Oh, for us, they're catching it instantly if there's something wrong. Well, because you're you guys are the last ones to handle the product, right? Yes. You pack it up. Yep. So the idea with regulation and, and, and all it, that stuff is it does not leave the warehouse until it goes through all of the uh, packing tests that are required. Right. So we test for um, we test for aluminum. Um, all I can think of is the color-coded stickers. That was oh. not, not what they mean. <laughs> we test for the red we thing, test the for, blue no, thing, we test the for, green thing. We test for the pink, which is reserve. Okay. The green thing, which is microbiology. Blue is something else. Uh-huh. And, uh, and also aluminum. Yeah. Okay. Aluminum so, has its specific mm-hmm. test. That's interesting. So how that is done, we do a random sample. Like, let's say our load is 71 50 kilogram drums, which okay. is a, which is a normal mix product uh, production run for us. Okay, um, we will test at random 13 different drums. So if there's something wrong with one of them, the right. odds are greatly high, right. very good that you'll catch it right with random sampling. Mm-hmm. So and we have had occasionally being like, yeah, this didn't pass. Like we have to do the yeah. te- we have to do the test yeah. again, to make sure the test wasn't messed right. up. Right, because one time on a test could be yeah. incorrect. So mm-hmm. yeah, double check it, and then yeah. yeah, have you had to throw out? Not since I've been product? there. Product, yeah. No, not since I've been there. Yeah, but we have had things like it'll fail a microbiology test or whatever, and mm-hmm. have to get retested. Usually, it's just um, something got wrong. Something was wrong with the sample itself. Mm. So, because mm-hmm. all of the samples that we do are vacuum sealed after we do them. Mm. So, but mm-hmm. sometimes they don't always seal correctly, and that's why. Yeah. That's the the amazing world of uh, amino acids. Fascinating. Yes. <laughs> well, we should stop because Aubrey said she doesn't like the banter at the end. We didn't do it purposefully this time, though. No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't save it. Also, hi, Aubrey. I'll see you at our appointment later on today because we have an, a week from today as oh. we're recording. Oh, okay. I was like, so, what? Yeah. She's coming into the office. See. Next night. This is so fascinating. Yes, it Us is. talking about our Ta- and Aubrey's and, schedule. Taxes and amino acids. It's a good, every, <laughs> this is just a fascinating. Everybody episode. tunes in for. <laughs> I promise something more exciting next next week. Um, so okay, well hold on. You don't have to do this all secretly. No, That's just, the name. Okay, I was just trying to remember. <laughs> And not make it obvious that like okay, but anyway, <laughs> we have no we have no secrets from our audience really. I guess not. Very few. Well, yeah, we have some, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> and it's up to you to find out what they are. Yeah. No, don't know. There's nothing. No. Yeah, no. just keep looking at our Twitter page, which uh, I put a a fun disaster on there today oh, yes, that you everybody did. that everybody seemed to enjoy. That was really funny. Yes. And horrible. So, and thankfully nobody got hurt in yes, it. Yes, so. that's good. That's but the main thing. Just uh tons of steel were injured. <laughs> yes. And and a fire. <laughs> yeah. But uh that was the Basra grain poisoning of nineteen seventy one and two. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week and Know your exits and don't eat the red wheat. <laughs>